listening to episode six of season four of Partnerships and Possibilities, a podcast on leadership. In this episode, the top workplaces. Hi, I'm Sharon. And I'm Diana. And we're going to be talking about leadership in organizations. Leadership in organization happens at all levels and takes many forms. So this morning, we... Um, we're going to take a look at some of the articles that it, and ideas that are have been circulating recently around um, top workplaces. Uh, at least in the Portland area, there have been a series of articles that have come out recently uh, relating to a survey asking employees to rate their workplaces. And you know, I, I don't, I never know whether whether those things are to be taken. At right. face value, because some companies may say try to influence them. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we've but, al- what we've also uh, had reason recently f- for one of our clients to look at some websites like Glassdoor.com and some of those, and so we know that employee attitudes about their work and their workplace. Um, have significance right now. Absolutely, yeah. people are very vocal about what mm-hmm. what makes a good workplace, and um, mm-hmm. they're not at all reluctant to trash a bad one. <laughs> we right. saw some from some saw, of those comments. Yeah, right, yeah. right. So, so maybe we can begin by um, uh, looking at. Well, there was an article in uh, the Sunday Oregonian that was about workplace balance um, and also uh, work-life balance, actually, and also was talking about some of the, the, the perks that are becoming more and more common that contribute to that. But in, embedded in that article, there was a definition of uh, culture that's a little bit different than um, ones I've seen before that I rather liked. And I, um, this was from an article written by Ted uh, Sickinger, so I want to be sure to give him credit. I don't what know was he, the name of the article so that we can reference uh, it? It's called A Balance of Work and Life, and okay. it was in the Sunday business section on September 22nd. Um, and I don't know whether he's quoting someone else here, but he, he, he doesn't have quotes around this, but... Mm-hmm. So it may it may be a pastiche that he put together, but I I, I want to just read you this um, this piece because uh, I I think there's a lot in there to unpack. It says organizational culture is a tricky thing, comprising the collective consciousness and practices that determine how people treat one another, whether they're fellow employees, suppliers, or customers. It's tough to create easy to squander. Yet it's clear that some of the highest performing companies in the country have the culture thing figured out. They nurture their internal brand as a strategic asset that stimulates a strong external brand. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like that use of the term collective consciousness because it, it implies a... Um, um, a level of depth mm-hmm. that I think we often don't really uh, give culture credit for for uh, mm-hmm. influencing and a, and a kind of um, 
if you will, unconscious awareness, you know, an embeddedness that, um, that is kind of a, just take it for granted, this is how things are. Right. Um, and, and yet, when you go on to read some of the specific items they're talking about, in terms of benefits or perks or whatever, that perhaps in the high-tech world are just taken for granted. Well, certainly know. in the software world. In the software more, world. I think. Yeah. 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 That in the world of government yeah. or, <laughs> you know, more traditional business right. would be shocking. Like yeah. the idea that there's no set vacation policy, that people take as much time as they want, when they want, when they need it. I mean, really? As long as they're getting their work done. I mean, that usually is the unspoken thing there. Well, that, yeah, of yeah. course. I mean, but it, I mean, I think you have to put that assumption in there. Um, you know, you're, you, you were hired, expected that you would do um, certain kinds and certain, maybe, I don't know, amounts is the right kind of word, but that you're going to be pro a productive contributor sure. to the organization. Sure. And that as long as you are doing that, in kind of alignment with the agreement that we have, our social contract, if you will, then, you know, how much time off you take is kind of immaterial. So, so, so yeah, I mean, that's that, that sort of for, assumption. Yeah. For people whose production level is relatively easy to quantify, I, I think we could probably all agree that yeah, yeah. that's kind of a no-brainer in, in in a sense mm -hmm. for somebody who's managing whose workload is essentially limitless you mm -hmm. know there's always more to be done right mm -hmm. what does done mean well i think it's it's you wouldn't necessarily say, I, I'm waiting to have a vacation until I'm done with my work. You would say, my work is at a place right now where there aren't a lot of loose threads or the, what, the loose threads there are, I can hand off to someone. In order to continue to do work, I need, I need a refresher. I need to... I need to take some, I need to do a retreat. I need to take some time away so that I can come back and do better work. The, the critical piece of this is the hiring piece, is who do you bring into the organization? Because it's, it's much easier to have a take a vacation whenever you want kind of policy or stance I mean, it's not even really a policy, yeah, right? Kind of no policy, right? But, but a stance like that, if you are hiring people for whom work and and the production of the creation of whatever it is they do is so rewarding that they really want to show up at work and do that. Sure. And so... Um, you know that that's that's a whole different way of thinking about who who you're staffing and what you can um, what you can expect from them 
Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, we've said this about our work. I mean, we're, I think we are really, really lucky in that, you know, I can, to some extent, in conjunction with my clients, I can set my own hours. I right. mean, I have to be responsive to their needs. But, but outside of that, as long as I'm doing what I need to do, and, you know, some years go by and I've never taken a vacation, but I may have had a day here or a day there because that felt more like it worked that year. The next year I may decide I want a, a week or two weeks away. And, and it's entirely up to me because I love my work. Hmm. And so I'm not going to slack on my work. I'm going to make sure that gets done. But I also know that I need a professional development that I need to go off and do and be some time for renewing and refreshing. Otherwise, my work won't be good anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what these companies are saying. We are hiring people or we want to hire people who are capable of that kind of self-management and who, who love their work enough that they will be devoted to it or devote the right amount of time to it and attention to it and and yet can be counted on to take the time away that they need without um, uh, abusing that privilege. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a thing. I mean, I, I haven't heard any stories about um, those kinds of organizations that have had to take steps to um, with someone who was abusing the privilege. But I suspect those stories are out there somewhere. Well, and because yeah. this is relatively new, it, yeah. there may not be enough history yet That's right. for that. But, you know, there's that brings up several thoughts. For, for one, I wonder how that squares with something like the policy that an Intel uses where every number of years um, employees get... A sabbatical yeah but that's planned for mm-hmm. in in such a way that that there's it is possible for somebody to be gone for four or five months mm-hmm. um, I wonder how you know if somebody were to say not only do I need a vacation but I need you know two weeks isn't going to do it I need months, mm-hmm. you know, how that would be accommodated, um, that's one thing. And then the other side of that are the people who, for whatever the reason, maybe they're afraid that if they're gone for any length of time, people will figure they can get along without them or whatever, because there, there are those people who really are workaholics, mm-hmm. who literally can't take very much time off, mm-hmm. you know. Or don't. Or, yeah, I mean, they choose not to. Right. So, um, I don't know enough of the details about a yeah. situation where there is, if you will, no vacation policy, um, where, what what well, happens for those folks? Well, so interestingly, yeah. I think that then becomes part of the manager's job is to be paying attention, or the leader's job, to be paying attention and notice 
right? And and give a gentle nudge. I think it's also I think also that you you said the title of this was more about work life balance. I think the other well, this thing, particular one, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But but a lot of these things are around that, and and the the idea of recognizing. Um, I mean, you know, particularly in the technology arena, in the software arena, um, the the workforce skews a little younger, which means very many uh, people who fall into that demographic have young families and that need them for various reasons. Maybe because children get sick, maybe because they just, the, the spouse and kids need time away, maybe the spouse gets a regular vacation time. So there's all kinds of other influences that would cause someone to say, this, I'm, I'm taking vacation. Mm-hmm. I also think there's a lot more emphasis on whether or not it's team-based work, formal team-based work. There's a lot more emphasis on, on collaborative work. And so taking time away, I don't know about a five-month sabbatical or whatever, but taking time away is a conversation that you have with the people that you're collaborating with, right? I, I really need to go do this. How are we going to cover? Blah, blah, you know, that conversation. Um, I think all of this, you know, anytime... Anytime you choose to have a policy, it's a shutting down of conversation. Anytime you choose to eliminate a policy, it's an, the only way to manage is to open up the conversation. Mm-hmm. And so you're no longer uh, legislating, if you will, for the exceptions, which is what policies generally are. Somebody, right. somebody right. went to a funeral right. that what they weren't, or said they were going to a funeral when they weren't really related to the person or what didn't fall in our policy. So now we're going to have, um, you know, a policy where you can't go to a funeral unless you bring us a death certificate or, you know, some kind of thing like that. You know, only immediate family, you know, that those kinds of, you know, where they start putting a lot of rules around things, which Mm -hmm. makes a lot of exceptions to rules. And then there's a whole bureaucracy that has to manage that. Right. Whereas if there's no rule in the first place, it's just a conversation. Mm-hmm. And there doesn't have to be a bureaucracy built to hold that. Right, right, right. And so that's a that's a kind of an interesting thing. This book that I, that I had told you about earlier that I've been reading, uh, Scott Birkin's book, The Year Without, My Year Without Pants, um, which is about him working remotely, basically, you know, being able to work from home or whatever. In his pajamas? Yeah, or right. whatever. I mean, that it's, it, <laughs> I mean, it, I, I, as you I, go into the book, it turns out that was sort of a team joke, you know, oh, that we okay. could be working without pants. They're like, okay. you know, TV anchors or whatever. But um, the, the, he, he puts forward uh, the idea that the leader's role in this becomes critically important because the kind of collective consciousness that you talked about in terms of culture mm-hmm. and the how people respond to these kinds of present I mean it, there is a de facto policy there the policy is take a vacation when you need one 
um, and there isn't there just isn't a lot built around that 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 is very much driven by the behavior of those who are seen as leaders in the organization, whether it's the formal kind of founder or CEO or whatever, but how they, how people in those roles react, respond uh, to whatever kind of behavior is going on in their organization is an enforcer, a reinforcer of the okayness or not okayness of that behavior. Right. Of course. And it and their their reaction or response gets more weight than anybody else's. Right. I mean, so we can say that culture is the collective consciousness about these things. And the leader influences But the, the leader influences that a lot. Absolutely. Because people look to and we can't help but do that. I mean, I think it's part of being human. We look to, um, particularly those of us who are extroverts, look to other folks for guidance on what's acceptable, how how we're being, mm-hmm. how we are impacting the situation, and so on. And then we continue or discontinue our behavior accordingly or moderate it. So there's a there's an interesting role here for um, for the leaders in terms of how that works and how that doesn't work. And things that leaders don't acknowledge, even though they may be very good things, often die on the vine. You know, even really good ideas, because if they haven't gotten that attention, they they don't grow mm-hmm. in a lot of organizations. But I'm intrigued by your thought of what would it take to you know in in what kind of world could we transfer this kind of workplace that's very it's not even it's not even like the old Hewlett Packard Motorola days where the culture was about kind of nurturing the employees and and caretaking of the employees this is this is there's a difference here and it's more about um not so much about sort of paternalistic caretaking, but more about, um, uh, you know, we're all adults here. Mm-hmm. Make your choices. Mm-hmm. And and actually what I have seen in those organizations is the behavior that gets um, uh, uh, <laughs> that, you know, that people look down on has to do with, you know, if you're really, you're not contributing and mm-hmm. you're and you're slacking off and mm-hmm. you're really, you know, just not com- it coming up to par. So in that sense, it's kind of a meritocracy, too. I mean, this these these things come kind of hand in hand, and um, it can be a very uncomfortable place to be if the other folks don't think you're up to snuff. That's true. Yeah. And it's interesting, at least in some, you know, large organizations, how how people can just tune that out mm-hmm. and coast along for, for any number of years 
um, just drawing a paycheck. Um, well, I think that's a good point. Very few of these organizations would any of us call large organizations. Right, 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 right. I mean, they may they may have up to several hundred people. Right, but they're, they, they, they are not thousands of people. Or tens of thousands. Or tens of thousands, or hundreds of thousands, right. as you know, some of the really big organizations. Right. And so, you know, there is something here about you can accomplish these kind, you can have this kind of culture if your organization is still kind of human scaled. You know, whether you use Dunbar's number or mm -hmm. something else, mm -hmm. you know, what, what is a human scale for your organization and are you consciously choosing to keep that scale or are you going to grow willy-nilly? You know, is growth your primary value? In which case, sooner or later, you're going to have to manage communication and you're going to have to, man you know, and, then, and that's when the bureaucracy and the policies and procedures start loading on. Right. And that has to be done very carefully. Yeah. So I, I, I'm not sure what that number is. Yeah. You know, whether it's a, a few hundred or a few thousand or whatever. But, you know, you're right. I mean, in, in many large organizations, the, the policies and procedures handbooks, you know, could fill an entire bookshelf. Right. I mean... And a big bookshelf. <laughs> right. And there's a policy and a procedure for right. everything. Right. Um, and turning those kinds of organizations um, in, into something other than what, what they've grown to be just feels like an almost insurmountable kind right. of task. Yeah. Well, and I think that comes back around to another thing that we've been talking about lately, which is this whole question of, of organization design. Mm -hmm. I mean, that really is a structural issue. Mm -hmm. You know, do you just continue to grow and try to manage bigger and bigger, or do you deliberately break the organization up into more manageable containers, if you will, manageable chunks, numbers of people, types of work, uh, customers that are served. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to sure. slice that. Sure. And, and say, you know, we will build whatever kind of communication bridges we need in between these, but they are going to be fairly autonomous because otherwise, you know, we, we are going to pay the price of a lot of communication overhead, a lot of policy and procedure overhead, um, and um, in the way Scott Birkin puts it, it you end up flipping so that the value creators are in service to the supporters, and the supporters are no longer in service to the value creators, the, the people who are actually building the thing that pays us money right. <laughs> that the other right. people buy, right? Right. And, and, um, you know, the, the, you know, which, how do you, how do you construct your organization? What structures do you put in place in your organization, um, that are more likely going to foster the fact that people who are creating business value in terms of profit or whatever it is your organization is looking for, um, 
get the focus as opposed to those people having to spend all their time focusing on is my manager happy mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. which is a huge waste of productivity right and yet you know all of this data speaks to the fact that um, just like we saw years ago in that what was it the uh, the Athena report right that we looked at that the single greatest determinant of people's happiness in a workplace is their relationship with their immediate superior. Right. Right. You know, it it's that it it's the single greatest predictor of turnover. Yep. Of absenteeism of, of right. all kinds of whether it work, whether it's good or yeah. whether it's bad. Right. Right. It is the thing yeah. that has the most effect on your day-to-day life at work. Right. And, you know, cross the board. Uh, so you wonder how many of these top workplaces that we, that we were talking right, about the articles right. early on, how many of these top workplaces um, are paying close attention to who gets put in leadership positions and how they are um, uh, given professional development opportunities or coaching or whatever it is they need to do a really good job there to, to create those great relationships, those great supportive relationships with their employees that to make a, to make it a top workplace. I mean, it's not just, as you were saying earlier, you know, a lot of these places you walk into their, to their workspace and you see the big jars of candy and whatever. Um, you know, what else is there? I mean, that's not enough. Having, you know, snicker any snickers anytime I want all day long isn't really enough. Doesn't make up for a lousy boss. It doesn't boss. make up you for a lousy so? boss. No. How about if it's a baby Ruth? No, not even then. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, so those are those are nice perks and they uh, demonstrate a certain kind of care, but it's not the only kind of care that needs to be present. Uh, you know, the, the Costco card isn't the be-all and end-all to, you know, having a top workplace. Right. That I can, you know, go and buy whatever I want. So, you know, that that's kind of an interesting piece of that, too. Well, and, you know, when you look at the Oregonians survey, it's interesting. I, um, I would have thought that, well... It, Many of them are smaller organizations, yeah. but that's in part because in Oregon, most of the businesses are smaller businesses. But, um, you know, they're all over the map. Um, I mean, Edward Jones it, yeah. is the top-rated company based on employee survey, and um, a hotel chain, a mortgage company, and uh, an a automobile dealership. Um, a community library, mm-hmm. you know, so, so that there are lots of ways of being a top workplace. Right. Yeah. And, and I thought that, you know, some of these smaller companies that, that are so hip and so cool in terms of the, um, the software industry, the tech industry yeah. would show up at the very top. Interestingly, they don't, I'm not sure where they are on the list, but um, maybe we'll talk about that next.
Yeah, so if you, dear listener, if you work in a place that um, that you really think could be a top workplace, what is it about that place that makes it so? We'd love to hear that. If you have some opinions about what would keep any any workplace from ever showing up on such a list, uh, we'd be interested in your, your thoughts about what those kind of conditions and um, are. So please stay in, in touch with us. Please leave your comments on our blog or email us, info at futureworksconsulting.com. You can also find us on Twitter at futurewks. This has been episode six of season four of Partnerships and Possibilities. Thanks for listening.